prayer that God would show his mercy, uh, especially to uh, our brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, you're probably aware of the fact of the 16 uh, Christians who were uh, slaughtered yesterday in church in Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan has long been a very dangerous place to be a Christian. And for reasons that are all too obvious, uh, it may become even more dangerous. So would you join me and ask God's mercy and healing uh, on his people, especially in the Middle East and in Pakistan this morning. And Lord, we feel our hunger for you in so many different ways. Sometimes it's just the ache of loneliness and emptiness. Sometimes, Lord, it's the raw hatred of the name of Christ. Lord, we are no less desperate than those dear ones who were shot down yesterday. Lord, we need you. We pray, Lord, that you will strengthen your church, build it and make it strong, that you would destroy the works of the devil, that you would destroy every pretense and violence that sets itself up against you. And Lord, you would destroy every conspiracy against your holy word, and that you would show us your mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't know how uh, many of you know how blessed we are to have a president like Stan Gady. Stan is not just a president, uh, he's a pastor as well. And one of the reasons uh, I'm here this morning is because of uh, the leadership that I saw in this man. And I'm deeply grateful for every time I get to hear him speak to us as a student body. Uh, would you welcome our president this morning? Thank you, Ben. Is it working? Can you hear me? Okay. I have, uh, my allergies are kicking up a little bit this morning, and I um, hope that doesn't prevent my voice from working. I'm going to read uh, two uh, passages from Scripture. First is a little longer. The second one's quite short. The first one you've heard many times before, I'm sure. It's a parable of Jesus in Luke 15 uh, that is very familiar. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now instead of waiting until I die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and took a trip to a distant land, and there he wasted his money on wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him to feed his pigs. The boy became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked pretty good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired men have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go to home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired man. 
So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran out to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening in the pen. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now has been found. And then one verse from the end of Job, Job 42, 7. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and with your friends, for you have not been right in what you have said about me, as your servant Job was. Well, folks, we're, we've had about a month or so now since September 11th, and maybe that's long enough for me to talk about it, at least just a bit. As you know, I make a habit of trying to respond to questions that have come to me in one form or another. Without a doubt, the single most persistent question is why. That's not just a question that others have asked me. It's a question that I've asked myself and continue to ask myself as I think of the ongoing struggle and the events that we heard about this morning. The strength of this question comes not merely from the number of lives lost. Every day around the world, thousands and thousands of people lose their lives, and they often do so under terrible circumstances. The thing that makes this difficult is the nature of the event. To be blunt, here we had a number of people who so believed in their cause that they were willing to give up their lives in order to destroy the lives of many others. They were moms, and, and, and that happens often, I suppose, in war. But the people they were killing weren't just soldiers, weren't soldiers at all. They were moms and dads, sons and daughters, from almost every nation in the world, doing everything from cleaning the bathrooms to directing board meetings to flying to Disneyland for a weekend. How could one give up one's life for such an outcome? How could one justify that as something good? And more to the point, since I'm not really capable of figuring out other people, how could a good God let it happen? Where was God on September 11th? I've asked that question before, of course. In fact, I asked it just a few days ago while driving to the funeral service of an old friend. His name was Frank, and he and his wife and children were very close friends of our family all the time that I was growing up. We vacationed together, played lots of golf together when I played golf, and we just enjoyed each other's company. Frank's children were some of my best friends, and how grateful I am for those days that we had together. My questions arose, however, not because of Frank's death. Frank was nearly 90, and he lived a very fine life. What his death brought back to mind was his daughter, Pat, their second child, who was closest to my age, and in some way, she was sort of the joy of all of our lives. She had a wonderful disposition, seemed to have her bearing straight, and almost always did the right thing. She just seemed to be a good person, and that made her unique because none of the rest of us were, I can tell you that. We sort of needed Pat. Anyway, Pat went off to college, Biola of all things. We always figured that it was some form of ministry. Just kidding. 
anyway, she went to Biola, met a man by the name of Mark, who became her husband. Mark went off to seminary, and Pat began making babies. And not too many years, he was a pastor, and they were raising three beautiful children. But then one day, all five of them were driving somewhere, I don't remember where, and they were hit by a drunk driver. And everyone was killed, everyone except Mark. Pat, their three children were gone. And Mark and Frank and his wife and the rest of us were all left wondering why. Why in the world would this happen? Take the rest of us, Lord, but don't take Pat. Your world and your ministry need her. We need her. What rational sense can anyone make of the death of a wonderful young mother and her three children at the hands of a drunk driver? I'll tell you another one I never figured out either. And it's the early death of my wife's father. His name was Stan. Good name. And he and Judy's mom met while attending Wheaton just a few years before World War II. Judy's mother had a tough life. She grew up, grew up in an unstable family with a mom that was pretty critical of her and a father that was abusive, both to her as well as to her mother. And it was a really lousy situation. And then Judy's mom found Christ, made a commitment to live her life differently, and wound up going to Wheaton, where she met a person by the name of Stan Brinkman, football player and an all-around wonderful human being, I gather. They got married immediately after graduating from Wheaton, and then Stan went into the Air Force and flew jets during World War II. He wound up being a trainer, which probably saved his life. If he'd gone into camp combat, he would probably have perished. But he didn't, and after the war, they had two children, Dan and Judy, and then they moved to California. He got a good job, life was great, and then at the age of 29, only about a year before the polio salt vaccine came out, he, he died of polio quickly. And the whole thing makes no sense to me at all. Here was Judy's mom, who for the first time in her life had stability in the family. And now she loses her husband. Dan and Judy needed a dad. Their mom needed a husband. They all needed each other. Couldn't you have waited, Lord, for one more year until the vaccine was in place? What possible benefit can there be from taking the love of someone's life in the prime of their life for no particular reason. And I'm sure that everyone sitting here this morning could add about 100-fold to these stories, right? It's not just that there is death and destruction in the world. The fact is it happens in ways that appear downright wrong and entirely out of sync with what would be best and seem best from God's perspective. So what's going on? What are we to make of these things? Well, the first thing I've got to tell you is that I don't know the answer. And if anyone gives you a real precise answer on this one, I would encourage you to forgive them. That was Ben Patterson's advice in the wake of Ashley Williams' early death last year. And I think it's absolutely correct. Because we're walking into the domain of the unknown here. We're plumbing the depths of God's mind. And here's the really important point for biblical people. God himself, in his word, takes great pains to refuse to give us the specific answers we want. How do I know? Because the question is asked by his people time and time again in his word, and he rarely gives people the explanation that they want at the time. Moments like this always bring the book of Job back to mind to me, and I'm inclined, especially inclined to think of Job in these days. In fact, I think we are a lot like Job's friends, we Christians. 
living at this culture at this moment. If you haven't read Job for a while, I would encourage you to do so real soon. If you do, and if you're anything like me, you might be struck by the quality of the advice that Job's friends give to Job. You remember the story. Job is a righteous man who loves God and who is loved by God. Satan is not happy about the situation and accuses God of playing favorites. Actually, that's not quite the right way to say it. Because what happens in the first chapter of Job is that Satan is rather proud of himself because of his dominion or domination over God's world. He prowls around the earth, causes destruction and chaos, leading people astray right and left. And he's feeling rather good about himself. But God tweaks Satan and asks, Have you considered my servant Job? He's a righteous man. He does what's right. In other words, he lets Satan know that his victory is not complete. Satan somewhat defensively says, Well, sure, that's because you give him everything he wants. Who wouldn't be obedient with such a life? Take away a few of those luxuries and see what what he does. And so God lets Satan have his way with Job. And Job is hit by one calamity after another, losing almost everything, and almost everyone, except his wife, who isn't all that helpful, and his friends. And his friends, well, they turn out to be exactly what we would expect good friends to be, actually. They stick by him. They counsel him. And if you pay close attention to their advice, it sounds very, very good. What they tell him in a nutshell are precisely the things that we all know to be true. God is good. That's their most important point. And he wants what is good for us. That's number two. And if we follow him and do what's right in his eyes, he will bless us, protect us, and he will be, and we will be his forever. Our job is obedience, they say. God's job is to watch over and protect us and reward our good behavior with his good gifts. Now, I'm oversimplifying this a bit. In fact, I'm not being altogether fair with Job's friends because they express it much more eloquently than I. Moreover, I could draw on biblical material from the beginning to end to support most of what they say. The specifics of their assertions are readily defended using the Bible. Indeed, most of the time, their advice would even be right. It would apply. But in this case, it's wrong dead wrong. And their conclusion that Job must have done something to deserve this ill treatment is not supported by the facts. Job did nothing wrong, we are told. He deserved none of the calamities that came his way. And at the end of the story, you'll recall from the passage that I read earlier, God is very, very unhappy with Job's friends for their false teaching. So what happened? Where did Job's friends go wrong? And why was Job the victim of these calamities? Well, on these things, the Bible is crystal clear. First, the mistake made by Job's friends was not in the specifics of what they believed, but their lack of knowledge about the situation and the misapplication of biblical truths. They knew that God is good and that he rewards his people. Good beginning. What they didn't know was what God had in mind for Job. Nor did they understand the big picture. In particular, they didn't take into account that there was a much bigger battle going on than simply the one that they could see. They missed the powers and principalities in conflict, doing battle with the God of all creation. They were narcissistic, to put it in other terms, thinking their little slice of the picture was the whole thing and assuming that they could reduce God to their image, discerning his ways based upon the piece of the puzzle that they perceived. Now, I want to tell you something here that could be misunderstood, so I want to be careful. 
But I'm fairly convinced that we are often like Job's friends. We American Christians especially have come to expect things to go well. We expect to be blessed. We expect to be prosperous. We especially expect that when we have the sense that we, we when we have the sense that we're doing things right. And for whatever reason, we seem to have that sense quite a bit of the time. There is a wonderful kind of optimism about Americans, which typically serves us well. Better to see the glass half full than half empty. Better to assume the, bur- the, the best than the worst. But I think this trait has sometimes caused American Christians to misunderstand the nature of evil and the extent to which the evil one prowls the earth, seeking whom he might devour. The other day I was talking with a friend who spent about 10 years in another part of the world serving as a missionary to people who were very, very poor. What struck him upon his return to the States was how difficult it was for American Christians to understand calamities and tragedies in other parts of the world. Even evangelicals who understand the effects of the fall. He noticed that we seem to assume that if people just worked hard and did the right thing, such calamities wouldn't come about. It wasn't that we were necessarily blaming people for their problems, but we didn't entirely understand them either. It was hard for us to sympathize. Like Job's friends, we look at our brothers and sisters around the world who are in distress, and we talk with them and care about them, but we're a little puzzled by their difficulties. They must have done something wrong. If only they could admit it and fix their lives, and then surely they would have the blessings and benefits that we have. And of course, at some points that might be right, but in a lot of circumstances, it's wrong, as it was with Job. We need to get it into our heads that although this is God's world, which he is redeeming and will redeem, it's not there yet. In fact, the evil one is still very much on the loose. His doom is sure, but he is going to hell, kicking and screaming, and taking a lot of folks with him. Let me say this as bluntly and boldly as I can. What happened at the World Trade Center on September 11th was right out of hell. It was the evil one having a field day. What could he enjoy more than people in the name of religion killing the innocent and unsuspecting? I'll bet he has a calendar with September 11th written on it with a huge smiley face, a day to remember an infamy. But he has lots of those days. And they're happening all over the world to good people and bad people alike. It happened in the killing fields of Cambodia. It's happening in the wars across Africa. It's happening in the devastation of diseases across vast sections of our planet. It's happening in mountain villages, the result of the devastation brought about by drug trafficking and prostitution and a hundred other things. And to get back to where I began, that's exactly what happened when Pat and her three children were killed by a drunk driver not too many years ago. It's evil, and it's wrong, and it's not what God wants, but it is what he has allowed, what he has allowed us to do. What we seem always to forget is the beginning of the story. What we forget is that we are the ones who chose death. God is the one who offers life. We were the ones who thought we would be better off charting charting our own course, becoming like God, and controlling our own destiny. And Satan laughed, and the angels cried, and we've been choosing death ever since. Make no mistake, 
Satan may have laughed on September 11th, but human beings did that to each other. Human beings were deceived enough to think that that slaughter was somehow a victory. We think the question is, where was God on September 11th? I think the question is, where was humanity? The clear perpetrators of that event were human beings given extraordinary freedom and ability by their creator and using it to destroy precisely what he gave them. Where was God on September 11th? Where he was when Jesus was nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago. Another day that must have made Satan smile. Another day when the evil one no doubt put another smiley face on his calendar and exercising one of the most spectacular blunders of all time. You see, on the day of his defeat, Satan thought he'd won. And that has been the story ever since. The surprising thing in this world, my friends, is not death and destruction. It is life and redemption. That's the thing we don't deserve. That's the thing for which there is absolutely no accounting. Because that's the thing in which we had no participation. The killing fields? We did that. We do it all the time. But reclamation and redemption, that's God's business. And something we can only faintly and poorly reflect once in a while. I told you the story of Judy's mom who lost her husband at an early age devastating her and undermining the life that she had planned. What I didn't tell you was how she responded. And that was in deep grief, but in firm determination to honor her Lord. She didn't just follow Christ as long as everything turned out hunky-dory. She gave her life to Christ because it belonged to him from the beginning. And so she continued living her life as if it was his. She went back to school, a single mother, and finished her teaching credential. And she worked hard and raised two of the most wonderful human beings that I've ever known in the process, because of which another stand and another day could be blessed by her good work. But that's not all she did. She began a ministry, unnamed, but a ministry still to other singles who also lost their spouses. And the Lord brought into her life, one after another, people who had lost their mates and needed wisdom and support and prayer, and also a model of redemption. And that's what she gave them. Without knowing what she was doing, just following her Savior in faithfulness, engaging in the same reclamation process that Jesus does on a much grander scale every day. You want to know my conclusion? You've heard it before. We're stupid. That's my conclusion. Like the prodigal son, we run away from home from our heavenly father, seeking our own fortune. But we're worse than the prodigal son because when we end up slopping around in the mud feeling the effects of our own rebellion, we blame it on God. Why did you let this happen, we say? Why do you let us hurt one another, lie to one another, and kill one another on a grand scale? And you wonder why God doesn't just turn around and say, a pox on all your houses. Be done with it. Away with this project. That's the mystery. But instead, like the father in the story of the prodigal, he eagerly waits for the day of our return when he can kill the fatted calf and we can all rejoice together again back at home. But he doesn't simply wait, hoping anxiously that we will return. Our God is doing battle. He's leading the fight. He has waged the decisive battle in Christ, forever symbolized by the empty tomb. The only question is, 
is whose side are we on? Are we on the side of destruction or redemption? And it will do no good to stand on the sidelines and blame God for the destruction, acting as if we were above it all. We are not above it all. We are in the middle of it. And we are slayers often of one another, cutting one another down with our actions and inactions, our words and our deeds. If we think we are not sinners, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The question is, are we with Jesus in this thing or not? Are we going to be like Job's friends, blaming the innocent, or like Job, continuing to do what's right, even when we don't understand it? Only a few days ago, I was standing by a graveside and looking at Frank's casket. I've looked at a lot of caskets in my life, but I'm still not sure that I get the point. We look out at others who do great evil and we ask why, but we forget about that which we already know. What we know is that we will all be in one of those caskets sooner or later. Sometimes, as was the case with Frank, it comes at a ripe old age. Sometimes, as was the case with his daughter and grandchildren, it comes much, much earlier, too earlier. But it always comes, always comes. And the real question at that point isn't about God, it's about us. How did we live our lives and for whom? We may get all kinds of joy out of giving advice to others and complaining about how God is running his world, but on that day, we will complain no longer, nor give any more advice, for we will know and we will be known, and that will be all that matters. Who are we in these stories? That's the question. Are we like Job? doing what's right, even when we don't understand? Or are we Job's friends, giving lots of advice but missing the point and learning very little in the process? Are we like the prodigal son, returning to the arms of our awaiting father, knowing our rebellion and knowing full well that we don't deserve such a reunion? Or are we like the older brother who stands there puzzled and hurt by God's amazing grace? The problem with God, remember, isn't that he's unfair. It's that he's incomprehensibly gracious. If he were just, we'd all be history. Grace alone accounts for his patience, and grace alone will bring us home. Let us pray. Father, forgive us, for we are amazingly dull, sometimes slopping around with the pigs when we could be feasting with you, sometimes giving advice when we have neither the right nor the wisdom to do so. Help us, Father, by your Spirit, not to necessarily have all the answers, but all the grace reflecting Jesus all the time. And why should we be gracious and faithful even in the midst of the battle, even in the face of evil? Because you are our mighty fortress, O oh God a bulwark, never failing. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little